The reading is from John chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, and you can find it on page 863 of your Pew Bible. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a teacher of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can anyone enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. And what is born of flesh is flesh, and what is born of spirit is spirit. Don't, do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not his son, send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Word of God, word of life. Thanks be to God. Not long after we moved to Onalaska, Carla and I went to a financial planner, because that's what you're supposed to do. And I remember going into a very nice room with a giant, long oak table and a big screen TV that hung on the wall. And after some small talk about being parents of toddlers, our advisor opened up a questionnaire on his computer, which was projected onto the TV. Age. How much do you currently make? How much are you currently saving for retirement? Then came a crucial question for the whole project. He asked, how long are you going to live? How do you answer that question? Like, what data, what feelings, what guesses can inform your answer? Well, genetically speaking, here's my family history, or my lifestyle includes these and those habits, or Maybe I call on an actuarial table, you know, like, well, on average, people like, like me live into their 80s, whatever. How long are you going to live is a question we, we can guess at, maybe even generate an educated guess. But the only honest answer is I don't know. Or maybe put better, I can't know. 
So what do you do with questions that they have an answer? It's just you can't know the answer. One option, taken by many actually, is to ignore these kinds of questions. Shrug your shoulders, look away, maybe run away from a question like this. A question whose answer you cannot know. Another option, pretend to know the answer to an unanswerable question. This will require a guess or maybe an assumption. So I could have heard that financial advisor's question and refuse to engage altogether. Like just ignore the unanswerable question and walk away. A lack of a retirement plan could be my plan. Or I could have guessed one way or another, right? By assuming that I'll die young, I could be choosing to err on the side of living life now. By guessing I'm going to live till I'm 110, I'm willing to err on the side of living life later. But there is another option as well. And that is to live in the I can't know. It's simpler to just walk away from a question like this or to make a guess about these kinds of questions and then become rooted in some opinion or some answer or some feeling. It is more difficult to admit I can't know and then stay there because it admits our own limitations, our own lack of control. And most of us are very uncomfortable with how out of control we are in general, especially as it pertains to important questions like how long are we going to live? But here's the thing, living into the I can't know in this example allows for the possibility of old age to pull on the possibility of dying very soon and vice versa. The image in my head is like a tug of war. Living into the I can't know is living in the midst of a constant tension between living life now to the fullest and living life prudently now so that I can live life later, much later. For me and my family, living in the I can't know tension to this particular question means we have a budget, which includes saving money for later for things that I might or might not be around for, college for my kids, weddings, retirement. And also, when that opportunity comes from out of nowhere to do that thing you've always wanted to do, but it kind of doesn't fit in the budget, like, what do you do? Because in my head, I might feel the inclination to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It is a biblical quote, after all. But I also might feel like, well, I just... We can't afford to steal from our future to pay for our present. And oftentimes, there is no cut and dry answer. Thoughtful stewards of money live into that I can't know. And with each decision, they feel that tug of war, the, the strength of that possibility of old age, pulling on the strength of the possibility that I could live life now while I have it. If you don't live in that tension, your responses become far simpler. You either 
always spend the money. And maybe you know people who do that. Maybe you are a person who does that. Or you never spend the money, right? And there are consequences for each. Living in the tension of a question whose answer we cannot know, I believe, is the way of faithfulness. Faithfulness is not ignoring the question or guessing at the question, landing on an answer you will not be persuaded from. Living in the tension of an unanswerable question requires moment-to-moment engagement with all the possible answers and what each answer would mean to yourself and to your community, your family, your church, your community, your nation, your world. This is not a sermon about financial planning, though. You're welcome. I just use that question, how long are you going to live, to provide an example of a real-world question that cannot be answered but requires a response. As much as you can ignore it, guess at it, or engage with it, those are the same responses you can have to a religious unanswerable question. And today in the Gospel of John, Jesus has a conversation with Nicodemus that contributes greatly to the tension that Christians live in as we engage with the question, who gets saved? I was asked not long ago by an adult, do we believe in universal salvation? Like those Christians, and then they they named a denomination? where everybody gets to go to heaven? Or do we believe in limited salvation like those Christians? Then they named another denomination where they believe only some people get to go to heaven. Now, I suppose I could have just ignored the question, shrugged my shoulders, and been like, oh, and walked away. Or I could have told them a very definite answer, which would have been more like an educated guess. And maybe those two responses are easier because, you know, shrug your shoulders and saying, I don't know, allows you to stop thinking about it. Go back to your phone or whatever. And a definite answer, an educated guest said with confidence, that might be what a pastor is expected to do. Many of you expect me to give you an answer. But if I'm honest, I got to admit, I can't know. But... In faith, I engage with the question so that I can continue to consider what all the possible answers would mean to myself and, in this case, to this person, what it would mean to my community, my world, and what it would mean to the person they're talking about, right? Because they're not just asking a religious unanswerable question as though it's some hypothetical they don't really care about. They've got somebody in mind, right? Who goes to heaven? To be clear, there is an answer. (laughs) We just can't know the answer. God instead calls us into a relationship where we get to live in the tension of an unanswerable question. The Bible has many texts from authors living through a variety of circumstances over centuries that create multiple streams of biblical theology. According to Dr. Eugene Boring, yes, his name is Dr. Boring, One stream maintains that ultimate salvation is limited. In other words, not everybody's going to be saved. So, for example, and there are many, 
Isaiah 26 says, Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the wrath is past. For the Lord comes out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no longer cover its slain. Okay. Matthew 25 has Jesus talking about the kingdom of heaven. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, he says, all the nations will be gathered before him and he'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I could keep on quoting from this stream of biblical theology for a while. And I could also spend quite a bit of time wading in the stream of biblical theology that tends toward or explicitly affirms inclusive, universal salvation. That is where everybody gets to go to heaven. When God calls Abraham to go from your country to a land I will show you, God says, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not some. And there's nothing God says those all have to do. God wants to bless all. Or how about Isaiah 19? That's the same book I just quoted before that said the Lord's going to come out from his place to punish. A few chapters before that, Isaiah says, the Lord will listen to Egypt of all peoples and heal them. Remember, the Egyptians are the ones that held Israel in slavery, those Egyptians. On that day, there will be a highway, Isaiah says, from Egypt to Assyria. These are also not the good guys in the Old Testament. And the Assyrian will come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. This is like cats and dogs living together. On that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. Who are your people? Egypt and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my heritage. This would be like saying Iran and North Korea will someday be besties with the United States of America. On that day, God will say, Blessed be my people, Egypt. That is Isaiah's way of saying all. So there are these multiple streams of biblical theology that pull on each other on purpose. We believe that Scripture, the Bible, is inspired by the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe that. And one of the most clear ways I see that is that over centuries, so many authors from so many circumstances could continually add to these streams of theology that do not bring us answers to get rooted in and bogged down in, but instead keep us engaged with each other and with God engaged with the source of life and truth. What's extraordinary about our text for today from John is that these two streams of biblical theology meet in consecutive verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. So Dr. Boring 
cites this famous, maybe most famous of all biblical verses as a part of that stream that flows from the idea that only some are going to be saved. This verse claims that one can perish, but that the whole world could receive eternal life when they believe. There's a qualification there, right? When they believe. But then, with the very next verse, John writes, Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The world. Dr. Boring cites this verse as a part of the stream that flows from the idea that all will be saved, even the Egyptians and Assyrians, like Isaiah says. Revelation will later paint pictures with words that show a new Jerusalem that has all its gates open all the time to all. Both streams run strong. And that's why we have all heard some religious people say, well, everybody's getting saved, while others are certain only some people are getting saved. It leaves some preferring to ignore the question and just walk away because it's just frustrating. It leads others, and I'm inviting you to be among this last group, it leads others to live into the I can't know but instead of ignoring the question or offering even an educated guess whose answer you prefer, in faith, I believe we are invited to remain engaged in the tension. Because if we let go of the idea that God eventually saves all, then wouldn't that mean that God's mercy is limited, that God's love is limited, that God's love is conditional? Where exactly would the lines be for who gets to come in and who doesn't get to come into the pearly gates? And who gets to clarify where the lines are for who's in and who's out? Better not be me, because I don't know. I don't want it to be you, because I don't think you know. Limited salvation has problems. But if we let go of the idea that God can choose to exclude some from life eternal... If everybody gets in, then is God a God of justice? How can it be just for Adolf Hitler to live in God's kingdom among the Jews whom he exterminated? Like, both streams of biblical theology run swiftly because God knows humans like us have always and will always need to drink from both. Because the idea I do not prefer saves me from indulging in the excesses of the idea I do prefer. Poor Nicodemus. He comes in the night to get some answers, right? And I can resonate with old Nick here. But Jesus knows Nicodemus can't know the answer. But he and all of us can live in the tension that is between John 3.16 and John 3.17. And not only can we... But living in that kind of tension is where God is. It's where faith happens. It's where our relationship with God remains alive. Living in the tension is where and how God keeps making things new in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls. Just like this time of year, we see the tension playing out in creation between winter and summer and in the tension between the streams of 
cold and hot of darkness and light will come green. So much green. Life. Baptized into a relationship with God, we are called to live between old death and new life, knowing and feeling and seeing both, and together in Christ, growing closer to God all the time. The good news today is that as much as you and I are unanswerable questions to God, God does not ignore us. God does not guess at us. God engages with us, living with us in the tension we provide God. As we are saint sometimes, sinner other times, just think how complex and hard we are for God to figure out. Each of us is an unanswerable question. We talk about two significant streams of Jasonology, saint and sinner, and yet God remains engaged with each and every one of us, always and forever. Thanks be to God. Amen.